Jeremiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 17, Jeremiah says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider and call for the mourning women, that they may come and send for skillful wailing women, that they may come. Let them make haste and take up a wailing for us, that our eyes may run with tears and our eyelids gush with water. For a voice of wailing is heard from Zion. How we are plundered. We're greatly ashamed because we have forsaken the land, because we've been cast out of our dwellings. You hear the word of the Lord, O women, and let your ear receive the word of his mouth. Teach your daughters wailing and everyone her neighbor a lamentation for death has come through our windows, has entered our palaces to kill off our children no longer to be outside and the younger or the young men no longer in the streets speak. Thus says the Lord, even the carcasses of men shall fall as refuse on the open field like cuttings after the harvest, and no one shall gather them. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising Loving kindness, judgment and righteousness in the earth for in these I delight, says the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised with the uncircumcised Egypt, Judah, Edom, the people of Ammon, Moab, and all who are in the farthest corners, who dwell in the wilderness, for all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in the heart. Remember that Jeremiah's message began at the temple gate, and he began with a message in chapter 7. In chapter 7 and chapter 8 and chapter 9, all the way to chapter 10, it's one continuous message. He has spoken about the people's false worship in the temple. He has spoken about the false teachers who have encouraged the people to oppose God's prophet and who have found false security in the false teachers teaching who encouraged the people that they could ignore Jeremiah, that there really was no threat, that there was no problem, that there was no judgment coming. And so the people continued to have false security in traditional religion. They continued to disobey God's word. They continued to ignore God's warnings and their refusal was irrational because it would lead to judgment. The people put a great deal of confidence in the covenant that was made through Abraham and through Moses. But yet the people repeatedly broke the covenant. And in chapter nine, we saw all of this was going to provide a recipe for judgment, a recipe for judgment 
would go something like this. In the first seven verses, we saw if you continue to sin and you think that your sin doesn't matter, that you can sin without impunity or without consequences. That's a that's one little ingredient that you can put in the pot that's going to spell a recipe for judgment. The second little ingredient for your recipe for judgment is to embrace the false notion that you're exempt from judgment in verses 7 through 16. That somehow your religion or somehow your upbringing or somehow your Bible knowledge or somehow you are placing confidence in something other than God. The third is this last part in verses 17 through 26. It's to reject spiritual understanding. Remember, in the New Testament, Paul writes that certain things are spiritually discerned. As a matter of fact, that that carnal man does not understand the things of the spirit because they are spiritually discerned. And if you are a person who doesn't understand God or you don't understand the Bible or you don't understand the consequences of judgment, it can all be very, very confusing. And so the recipe for judgment begins, if you will, in this particular portion is to reject spiritual understanding. And look at verse 17. It says, thus says the Lord of hosts. And remember, in Jeremiah, when he speaks, the Lord of hosts is the title that Jehovah gives to himself to remind you that he is in control and that all of human civilization and history is bending according to his own will. Consider and call for the mourning women that they may come and send for skillful wailing women that they may come. In other words, as Jeremiah is giving his sermon, he's inviting the people to invite the mourning women, the wailing women. These were professional people that you hired in order to express grief and sorrow. Now, that's something that's very strange to our culture. It's strange for us to think about hiring people to come to your funeral to make it more sad. My father died a few years ago in New Orleans. New Orleans is one of the most famous cities in the world for funerals. And one of the things that my father wanted was a jazz band. And some of you may have seen television shows where people will march and they'll be like a morning dirge and they'll sing songs. And then about halfway through it, they'll start breaking out into a dance and a celebration. For the Jewish people, they would hire particular people to wail and scream and mourn. As a matter of fact, the church father Jerome in the 4th century A.D. wrote, quote, This custom continues to the present day in Judea, that women with disheveled locks and bared breasts and musical utterance invite all to the weeping, unquote. The word skillful here means Wise, The mourners were meant to stimulate mourning, much like actors stimulate some kind of emotional response in the audience. So why is he saying this? Because people don't have a sense of sorrow over their own sin. In other words, they don't recognize 
the impending judgment that is going to bring about a catastrophic circumstance. And so he basically says, I'm going to invite you to a funeral. I want you to prepare your hearts right now for this judgment. In other words, let me just be blunt. The people were oblivious to their spiritual condition. You probably know people like that. They're oblivious to their spiritual condition. They have no idea that there's a God, really. They have no idea that their life is going to come to an end. They have no idea that they're going to face God in an inevitable judgment. And so here, Jeremiah suggests that they hire professional mourners to come and weep over their sin and their impending judgment. As a matter of fact, Jesus says something very similar in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. You'll remember Jesus said, blessed or oh, how happy are they who mourn. That seems counterintuitive. How can you be blessed or happy when you're mourning? And of course, Jesus is making reference to those who are mourning over their sin. They're mourning over their sin in the hopes that it will produce repentance that will lead to salvation. And that's exactly what Jeremiah is hoping for. That that profound sorrow, that sense of shame and guilt will generate some sort of emotional recognition that something is fundamentally wrong. As a matter of fact, in Jeremiah or in Matthew chapter five, verse four, you'll, you'll remember what Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. And the last part of the sentence is for they shall be comforted. Is there a sense of sorrow that comes with mourning? Yes, but there's a sense of comfort and the comfort is the comfort that comes from forgiveness and salvation. Because if sorrow for sin has any benefit, it is the benefit of knowing that there is a God who loves you and who is willing to forgive you. And so Jeremiah is stirring it. Then in verse 18 and 19, he says, let them make haste. That means get right to it. Let's not delay. If ever there was a time to not put it off, if ever there was a time not to say maybe next week or next year, he says, let them make haste and take up a wailing for us that our eyes may run with tears and our eyelids gush with water. Jeremiah is saying, let's not waste any time. Let's get started. In other words, you know what he's doing? He's inviting the people to express their sorrow, to express their grief. You see, in the Jewish culture, that was something that was very, very normal to express your sorrow, to express your grief. Italian people are very much the same way. Italian people, they yell and they cry. They have these what seem like uncomfortable emotional outbursts. Hispanic people are like that, too. My wife is pura, pura Mexicana. Early on in our marriage, she said, here, hold the baby. We're going to fight. She wouldn't hide her emotions. There's nothing, you know, there's nothing that you're going to sneak past her. And so for, for these people, they're saying, look, if ever there was a time not to hide your emotion, it's now. Express your sorrow. Express your grief. 
Now, again, what Jeremiah is trying to do is to get the people to a place where what's going on in the inside would be manifested on the outside. This goes to the heart of what we're talking about, the recipe for judgment. Part of the point that is being made is this concept of spiritual understanding. And I'm going to ask you a question. Do you have spiritual understanding? And with spiritual understanding comes this concept. People with spiritual understanding mourn over their sin. They mourn over their wickedness. They mourn over their guilt. In other words, there is that sense of sorrow that wells up inside of you. As as this sense of sorrow and guilt wells up inside of you because you know that it offends God and you know that it offends Jesus. And so there is this sense of, of, of sorrow that wells up inside of you as you draw close to God, that you know that you've offended him. But you also know something else, that there is grace and there's mercy and there's love and there's forgiveness that's available for those who will take advantage of it. And then look what it says in verse 19, for a voice of wailing is heard from Zion, how we are plundered, we are greatly ashamed Because we have forsaken the land, because we've been cast out of our dwelling. Now remember what I've told you each and every week, that the Babylonian people are coming from the north. They've already marched into the northern part. As Jeremiah is preaching this message, they're on the eve of destruction. When I was a kid, it was a popular song. Now you don't believe We're on the eve of destruction. It was Barry. um, What's his name? Barry. McGuire. Thank you. There's someone at least as old as me here. Barry McGuire was singing, you know, we're on the eve of destruction. And this is part of what Jeremiah is, is singing. He's going, don't you understand? Don't you understand that it's closer than it's ever been before? Judgment is just moments away. And so in in, in poetic form, he's saying, I hear a voice. It's the wailing that's heard in Jerusalem. In other words, here's what he's doing. He's painting a picture of the voices of despair as they're heard weeping and lamenting in Jerusalem. The reason? Because the judgment has come. Because the walls have been breached. Because everything that they used to know is no longer the same. And so he's opening up a window. He's inviting the people to see what apparently they're unable to see. That the the inevitable judgment is coming. And in verse 20 and 21 it says, Yet hear the word of the Lord, O women. And let your ear receive the word of his mouth. Teach your daughters wailing and everyone her neighbor a lamentation for death has come through our windows, has entered our palaces to kill off the children no longer to be on the outside and the young men no longer in the streets. You can imagine why Jeremiah's ministry was so unpopular. 
Can you imagine when the preacher gets up and he says, hear the word of the Lord, women, let your ear receive the word of the Lord. Hey, if you're going to teach your children, don't teach them to go to college to become doctors, lawyers, nurses. Don't teach them to go to school to become this or that. Don't teach them to become business people. Don't teach them anything other than how to wail. Because guess what? There is no future for them. Everyone, her neighbor, a lamentation. And he uses this personification of death making its way in. Jeremiah calls out to the wailing women. And he's basically, remember, they've hot, he says, hire professional people who will teach you about grief and mourning. And then allow them to teach you what it means to grieve and to mourn. And he says, when he uses that expression for death has come through our windows. This is the personification of death. In other words, he's basically using this imagery. In Hebrew, by the way, the letter W can serve multiple purposes. It's like the sound of O or U. It can even be a consonant like or a connective like and. But the word death, maweth, it can be pronounced mawet or mot, depending on the context. Now, this is kind of interesting because in the Canaanite pantheon of gods and goddesses, the god of death in the pagan culture was called mot or mot. And so Jeremiah isn't really, he doesn't care about the local deities. But I think that he's making a play on words for emphasis. We have expressions like that in our culture. Death takes a holiday or death comes. Here, death comes through the windows. The image is that that death sneaks in and that it's everywhere. The image that Jeremiah is giving is death has invaded their homes. Death has invaded their homes. Death has invaded the fortress cities. And you would think, okay, if somebody's going to have to die, the soldiers are going to have to die because soldiers are strong. They defend the country. Or if somebody has to die, the old people can die because they've already lived their life. But here he begins with the children, the small children. Because you would think that if judgment is going to come and it's going to result in death, surely the children should be exempt. But Jeremiah is basically saying judgment is no respecter of persons. The judgment will come and it will affect everybody. And it will in particular affect the children. And so that's the idea. Death kills the small children. Death kills the youth. But even as Jeremiah is saying those words, the people who are hearing the words are just like you and I. They're thinking, what are you saying, Jeremiah? Here's what Jeremiah is saying. For many of you, your children will never grow up. They won't get to go to school. They won't have a life. They won't do what you did. They won't go to first grade, second grade, third grade, fifth grade, sixth grade. They won't go into middle school. They won't go into high school. They won't have a life like you had to have a life. Because guess what? Their life is going to be cut short. Why? Because judgment is coming. 
And so he uses that expression. And the younger men no longer in the streets, typically in a healthy culture and society where there is peace and there's security and there's safety. You can hear the sounds of the children playing outside. And it's conspicuous by its absence. And so it may be that Jeremiah is saying that there's not enough mourners to go around. In other words, we've hired the professional ladies, but there's so many people dead that we're going to need extra help. And then in verse 22, look what it says. Speak. Thus says the Lord. Even the carcasses of men shall fall as refuse on the open field, like cuttings after the harvest, and no one shall gather them. The image is terrifying and disturbing, and it's supposed to be. The dead are in the open fields. There's no one left to bury them. The image is supposed to be disturbing and disgusting. The corpses are laying out in the open field and they've begun the process of decomposition and there's nobody left to bury them. Now, why is this imagery so important? Because remember about spiritual understanding. You see. People with spiritual understanding, they know what the Bible says, that the soul that sins, it shall surely die. The, the person with spiritual understandings knows that it's appointed once for a human being to die and then judgment. The person with spiritual understanding knows that death is an unwelcome intruder and that it's the wages of sin that's death. There's something disturbing and wrong when people we love die. And so this overwhelming image begins to take place as Jeremiah paints a picture of devastation. And when he paints that picture, it's as if he uses the picture of the harvest. When a person would come in, they would glean the fields. You, the, the person who owned the field would harvest the field, but there would be stuff left for the poor. And the poor would come and they would take some of the stuff, but there would still be stuff left. The word cutting or sheaves or handfuls were never left in the open fields. They were gathered together, but the, the grain would elude the reapers and the gleaners. And so the bodies that you see laying out in the street, you're wondering why no one will pick them up. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the famous preacher, said, divine love can rake a dunghill and find a diamond. And so as you're seeing this devastation, you're wondering, well, what am I supposed to do with the image that Jeremiah is giving to me? And part of the, what you're supposed to do with the image, there should be a sentence that should be welling up inside of your head as you're reading the passage. You should be asking the question, what must I do to avoid judgment? How can we escape this? How can we protect our children? How can we save our civilization? And that's the question that he's inviting you to ask. 
How can we escape judgment? And look at verse 23. Thus says the Lord. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches. Here's what he's, he basically begins to ask and answer the question in the negative. One of the ways that you're never going to be able to escape the judgment is to glory in your wisdom. We'll come up with a plan. We'll come up with a plan. Look, we'll figure out a way to defeat the incoming hordes of the armies of Babylon. We'll come up with a brilliant plan. Jewish people have been given an extraordinary, supernatural abundance of wisdom. Do you realize that half of the Nobel Prize winners who have ever won a Nobel Prize, whether it's in physics or medicine or chemistry or whatever you want to talk about, half of them have been Jewish people. Yet they represent 1% of the population of the planet Earth. They've been given an extraordinary amount of wisdom. We're fairly smart people. We'll come up with an answer. But the Lord says, beware. I don't care how smart you are. You're not smart enough to avoid judgment. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Well, we're strong. Here's what we'll do. We'll all go to the gym and we'll work out. We'll become tougher and stronger than anyone who would seek to hurt us. I've got to tell you something. You may be strong, but your individual strength isn't going to avert judgment. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches. Clearly, we can spend our way out of this. Clearly, if we can generate enough wealth, we can pay them off. Here's the question. It's a hard question, but I'm going to ask ask it. Are there some things that money can't buy? What do you think the answer to that is? I think the answer is yes. There are some things that money cannot buy. I'm going to reverse the question. What can debt purchase? See, you're laughing at the stupidity of of the question. What are you saying, Gino? What can debt buy? The very word means that you already owe. And so there's the key. The key is that there's something that has been purchased. And in this particular instance, it's the wrath of God and it's the judgment of God. You know, we humans are made to exalt and glorify and worship. Oddly enough, your wisdom and your strength and your ability to generate income was all created inside of you for the purpose of glorifying God. You were always meant to worship God with your mind and you were meant to worship God with your strength and you were meant to worship God with your provision. And so human beings will take those God-given abilities and try to buy their way out of trouble. 
Wisdom and might and riches might be of some concern, but they can't be of ultimate concern. And what Jeremiah is saying is that whatever it means to escape judgment, people won't be able to escape judgment by trusting in their wisdom and trusting in their ability to, to, uh, or their own strength or, or trusting in their own wealth. But it still leaves the question wide open. What will avert the judgment? And so in verse 24, he gives the answer. But let him who glories glory in this. That he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord exercising loving kindness and judgment and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. How can we escape judgment? By making sure that you know the Lord. Read it for yourself that he understands and knows me. It's not strength. It's not wisdom. It's not wealth. You want to avoid a catastrophe? Jeremiah extends the invitation. Know me. And look what else it says. That the Lord is kind. The Lord is loving. The Lord is just. The Lord is righteous. But it goes to the the heart of what we've just said earlier. Remember, I'm asking the question about how we can avoid judgment. But I'm also asking the question about spiritual understanding. Because remember, there are two kinds of people in the world. Not Italians and people who just they were. That's getting old. It's who it's people who have spiritual understanding and people who don't have spiritual understanding. People with spiritual understanding believe in God and trust God. You know what's interesting about the book of Job and the book of Psalms? David's heart is broken and Job's world has been rocked and crushed. And if you've ever been in a situation where your world has been rocked and crushed, like Job, you know the story how the Lord says, consider my servant Job like there's nobody like him in the whole world. And remember Satan's response. The only reason why Job is the way that he is is because you put a hedge of protection around him. But if you remove that hedge, he'll curse you just like everybody else. And you know the story. The Lord says, hey, you're free to do with him as you please. But you can't take his life. And you remember the story. How in a single day all of his possessions are gone. In a single day his ten children are killed. In a single day everything that he had is taken away from him. And then all of a sudden he's cursed with this physical affliction of, of boils that makes his life miserable. And finally his wife comes to him and says, do yourself a favor and do everybody else a favor. Curse God and die. But you know what spiritual people with understanding do? People with spiritual understanding say, God is good. God is love. God is gracious and kind and merciful. Well, what evidence do you have to prove that? How can you say that he's good and kind and merciful when you see the spiral taking place and everything that you once had is now gone? Because people with spiritual understanding 
know that God is good even when there's no evidence for that goodness. And so, how do we escape judgment? That you know Him. That you press close to Him. As a matter of fact, the basis of boasting or glory is knowing God and being known by God. Do you want something to brag about? Paul quotes this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 31. Paul writes, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And I'm going to suggest that the word order is in and of itself important. That I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment and righteousness in the earth. That word loving kindness, it's the very important Hebrew word. Chesed or chesed. It is a word that's translated a number of different ways. If I were to try and communicate the meaning of that word in the English language, it would be covenant love, steadfast love, unfailing devotion. And so it speaks of covenant love, steadfast love, unfailing devotion. The Lord is contrasting his own unfailing love with the moral inconsistency of his people. Now, I want you to think about the context. The passage that we've just read about your children are dying. And the fields are littered with dead bodies. And when your children are gone, and everybody around you is gone, and you see the consequences of judgment, there's a burning, burning question that begins to speak inside of your ear. Is God good? Is he really good? Is his unfailing love really real? Is it real? Is it real? And so Jeremiah says, it is real. And I want you to note something else. That hesed, covenant love, steadfast love, unfailing love, appears in the sentence before judgment. You've heard me say this over and over to you. Grace precedes judgment. Mercy precedes judgment. God's steadfast, unfailing covenant love precedes judgment. Judgment. There's a reason why the warning is being extended. Now, this doesn't stand in substitution or opposition. This doesn't mean that the judgment isn't going to come or that the righteousness isn't going to be declared. God's hesed doesn't make God's judgment or God's righteousness less valuable or less important. Here's the invitation. The invitation is, why don't you come to me now? Believe me now. Love me now. Because you see, people with spiritual understanding, they know that God is loving and kind. They know that he always demonstrates compassion and genuine concern for people, but people who don't have spiritual understanding... They question his love and his kindness and his compassion. They say stuff like, 
God doesn't really know what's going on, and God doesn't really care what's going on. And I want you to think about that for a moment. Because the person who comes to the conclusion that God doesn't know and God doesn't care, that becomes a part of the recipe for judgment, doesn't it? And so, people with spiritual understanding know that God is loving, know that God is kind, know that he has compassion and genuine concern. People with spiritual understanding believe that God is just and that he will execute justice on the earth. Those who have spiritual understanding in their heart, they see the wickedness, they see the crime, they see the inevitable problems that are generated by living in a world that is filled with sin and in their mind and in their heart because they have spiritual understanding. They say, I know that God's going to correct this. I know that God's going to correct this. I know that God is going to make this right. People with spiritual understanding know that the Lord is holy. They know that the Lord is righteous. They know that the Lord is dwells in per- perfect righteousness. But they also know people with spiritual understanding know that he invites people to be holy even as he is holy. Like it says in First Peter chapter 1 verse 16. And at the end of the verse, where it has that that kind of interesting statement, where it basically says, in this I delight, for or in these things I delight, I'm going to suggest to you that the passage in the original language, in the Hebrew language, it's not just these things that God delights in, but it's actually these people. That he's delighting in. These are the people with spiritual understanding. The people who know that no matter how bad things are. That no matter how difficult the things are. These people. These are the wise people who know God. And that's the idea. He delights in the people who know God. These are the people that God delights in. And if that's the case. And I think that it is the case that the invitation is extended to know God. But how can you know God? How is that even possible? The Bible makes it abundantly clear that our sin has separated us from God. And that is the gospel, that Jesus has died on the cross for our sin. So that there is a passage, there is a way that we can know God. F.W. Faber said, there's wideness in God's mercy, like the wideness of the sea. There's kindness in his justice, which is more than liberty. Mercy, kindness, justice. Matthew Henry, in describing God's mercy, made reference in to the father in the story of the prodigal. You all know the story about the man who had two sons, an older and a younger, and the younger came to him and said, Father, I want you to give me my inheritance. It was in the New Testament way of saying, Dad, I wish you were dead and that I could have what you were going to intend me to have right now. And the father, sadly, gave The son, his inheritance, and you know the story, how he goes and he squanders his inheritance and he finds himself estranged from God, shucking 
um, corn and feeding pigs in a pig sty. And all of a sudden the Bible says he came to himself and he realized that even the servants in his father's household had it better than him. And you remember how he makes his way back to his father. He says, I'm going to go and see if I can just become a hired servant in, in my father's house. And you'll remember that the father saw him and Matthew Henry in describing God's mercy. He says to the father in the story of the prodigal quote, his father saw him. And these were eyes of mercy. He ran to him. These were legs of mercy. He put his arms around his neck. These were arms of mercy. He kissed him. These were kisses of mercy. He said to him, these were words of mercy. Bring here the best robe. These are deeds of mercy, wonders of mercy, all mercy. Oh, what a God mercy. How beautiful is that? A merciful God who's looking for people to turn from their sin and embrace the forgiveness. And in verse 25, it says, behold, The days are coming, says the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised with the uncircumcised. Remember, the circumcised are the covenant people. The circumcision is the fact that they've identified with Abraham and they've identified with Moses. And the Lord says the days are coming that I will punish all who are circumcised with the uncircumcised. In other words, it doesn't matter if you were a part of the covenant community or you're not a part of the covenant community. In verse 26, it says Egypt. Judah, Edom, the people of Ammon, Moab, and all who are in the farthest corners who dwell in the wilderness for all these nations are uncircumcised and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in their heart. There's two things that I think are happening in the text. One is historical. Babylon is on the precipice getting ready to invade the country and overwhelm them. There are people who are thinking, no, we can have a coalition in the coalition with Egypt leading the coalition and Judah and Edom and Ammon and Moab and the farthest corners and all the people who are dwelling in the wilderness. Maybe if all of us, if all of us, if all of us get together, we can eliminate the threat. I think that that's what was taking place historically. But the reality is. That they weren't going to get together. And they weren't going to eliminate the threat. In other words, there is this sense in which there is still a holding out and a refusing to trust God. And by the way, Egypt is often pictured in the Bible with its riches and opportunities As a type of this world in the book of Revelation, chapter 11, verse 8, Jerusalem is preoccupied with business, idolatry, pleasure, and is compared to Egypt. Edom is the ancient relatives of Esau, Ammon. Remember, these are the the people who dwell along The eastern borders where the Dead Sea meets Moab. These are the descendants of of Abraham's nephew, Lot, the Ammonites and the Moabites. And you'll remember that in Moab, Ruth was a Moabitess. She um, 
is often, and Moab is often represented in the Bible as those people who are outside of Christ. Canaan and Palestine were considered the promised land. All the rest of the countries were considered heathen countries. Naomi and her husband, you'll remember, they left God's people to go and live among the idolaters. And when they went to go to Moab, they found graves, they found tears, they found sorrow. It becomes a type and a picture of people who, are, who grow up in a church. Their mom and their dad are Christians. They go to church, but they hate it. They reluctantly go to church because they think there might be brownie points in it. If they can go to church and if they can read their Bible, maybe they can score points in heaven. And finally, they just even give up on that charade. And they decide that they're going to go live in the world and they find graves and they find tears and they find sorrows. The people of Moab become this type and a picture of people who have this idea that they're better off living apart from God and living apart from the kingdom of God and living apart in the land of promise. Part of the point of Moab is... That will never find blessing and will never find comfort. Will never find blessing and we will never find comfort apart from Jesus Christ. And so the coalition of the world. The coalition of people in the world apart from Jesus who will somehow make the judgment disappear is a fantasy. And all who are in the farthest corners might be a reference to the Arab tribes who dwelt in the desert. But whatever this list means historically, it's an alliance to try and prevent the onslaught of judgment. But it won't keep the judgment from happening. By the way, I have a question for you. If all nations and every nation on the planet Earth decide one day to unite and stand together in opposition to a coming Christ, will they make the judgment go away? No. And I suspect that's exactly what will happen. The countries of the planet Earth will find a commonality in their opposition to Christ. The nations are uncircumcised, literally goim. They're spiritually uncircumcised. There is, of course, the religious ritual of circumcision. But the point that Jeremiah is making is that if you've participated in the religious ritual, Ritual of circumcision, but you ignore the inward condition of your heart. You have a stubborn heart, a hard heart. Then you've got a problem. We sometimes forget the meaning and the purpose of circumcision. Remember that circumcision was given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, verses 10 through 14, as a sign to separate him from the rest of the nations. And the folds of the flesh held disease in the ancient world, which could be passed on to wives, but it then served as a symbol of the idea of remaining clean. It wasn't just clean on the outside, it was clean on the inside. And it wasn't just clean on the inside, it was a heart that was cleansed from sin. And that's the idea. It's a dedicated heart. 
The Bible saying that the real disease isn't on the outside of your body, but it's on the inside of your heart. And that's why the New Testament says it's not what you go put into your mouth that corrupts you. It's what comes out of your heart that creates a problem. And the Bible teaches that a series of judgments will take place when Jesus returns with his saints. And if you want to find out more about that, it's in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. In Matthew chapter 25, we see the marriage supper of the Lamb in verses 1 through 13. There's, a, there's a, a reward that is taking place. Second, we see a judgment of the saints in verses 14 through 30. Then we see a judgment of the living nations that exist when Jesus returns to the earth in verses 31 through 46. There's a series of judgments. I read an interesting story about Philip of Macedon. You may not know that name, but Philip of Macedon was the father of Alexander the Great. And apparently, while adjudicating a matter, while judging, he fell asleep while hearing a case and suddenly awakening, he gave an unjust sentence and the injured person said, I appeal. And the king, filled with indignation, said, to whom? He said, from yourself sleeping to yourself awake. (laughs) And the king heard the man's case and exonerated him. And we sometimes think that God in heaven has fallen asleep. At least we hope so. We hope that he was taking a nap when we were thinking this. When we were saying this, when we were doing this. But God isn't like a mortal king or an earthly judge. The Bible says he neither slumbers nor sleeps. God didn't fall asleep when Jesus died on the cross. At the cross of Calvary, Satan was judged and his power was broken. And there the sins of every believer is judged. If you want to know more about that, you can look at John chapter 5, verse 24, and John chapter 12, verse 31. The Lord seems to be saying that the religious rite of circumcision has no value if it's not accompanied by the spiritual reality of a pure heart. And if that's the case, he's pointing out something. It's not the temple that's going to save you. It's not the covenant that's going to save you. It's not the circumcision that's going to save you. The Jews were no better than their pagan neighbors. And they couldn't expect not to be punished. But Jeremiah leaves clues. How can the people escape judgment? It's to have spiritual understanding instead of not having spiritual understanding. How can the people escape judgment? It's by refusing to trust your own wisdom, to trust your own strength, to trust your own resources. By the way, I want you to think about that for just a moment. What do people usually trust? Their own wisdom, their own strength, their own resources. But what happens when wisdom goes and strength declines and resources 
disappear. You see, we don't always understand that sometimes God will take away our faculty and will take away our strength and will take away our resources, not because he hates us, but because he loves us. And he wants you to trust his wisdom. And he wants you to embrace his strength and to avail yourself of his resources. And so in verses 25 and 26, it says the people wouldn't escape judgment by trusting religion. There's only one way. There's only one way. There's only one way to escape the judgment. That's to know him and to be known by him. And there's the answer. Jesus is our strength against sin. The cross of Jesus is our power over sin. And so the Bible teaches that a day will come when the wicked are judged and the righteous rewarded. And in one sense, judgment day has already passed. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross of Calvary was judgment day. But in another sense, judgment day is yet future. We face the Lord. We give an account of our lives as either savior or judge. And when we trust Jesus, God allows the cross of Jesus and the sacrifice of Jesus. It becomes the very real punishment that we deserve. We're going to have communion in just a moment. And that's what communion does. It it paints a picture That Jesus paid the penalty of sin, canceling our debt. We sang it earlier. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. Our wickedness, our sin, it hurt us. But Jesus washed it white as snow. But you see, those who never trusted Jesus have to stand before God and bear their own sin. They have to go on the basis of their own righteousness. And this is the key. How can I avoid judgment? How can I remove my sin? Can you remove your sin by being religious? What if you go to church every single day? What if you read your Bible every single day? What if you pray every single day? Will that expunge the crimson stain? No. There's only one thing that will expunge the stain. It's knowing God. It's loving Jesus. It's knowing Him and trusting Him. In Matthew 16, 27, it says, For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and he will reward every man according to his works. The Bible says in Hebrews 9, 27, it's appointed once for human beings to die. But then the judgment. You will stand before God. With your sins forgiven because you know and love Jesus. Or you'll stand before God. With your sins remaining. Because you've decided to trust your own strength. To trust your own wisdom. 
to trust your own resources. Good luck with that. By the way, religion, religion never saved a single soul. But Jesus saves every soul who comes to him in humility, mourning over their sin, repenting for their sin, willing to turn from their sin to him. And here's the promise. That all who come to him, he will in no wise cast out. If that's you, make the right choice. Bow your head even now and say, Heavenly Father, my sin is before me and I've never really experienced forgiveness and hope. I've never trusted Jesus as my Savior. I know that I'm a sinner and I want forgiveness. And I'm willing to. To trust that Jesus is that satisfying solution for the problem of my sin. And I receive him now. Lord, give me a heart that's clean. Lord, give me the opportunity to talk to you. Lord, place in my heart the desire to read my Bible. And Lord, give me the courage to tell somebody what I've done. In Jesus' name. Amen.